Thank you, Howard, worship team, for those songs of praise. Uh, it's, uh, it was a joy to, uh, to worship together with you. Uh, last weekend, I was at a, speaking at a, uh, another church's retreat and uh, down in uh, San Jose, or Santa Cruz, actually. <clears throat> but uh, my heart was with you and praying for you as, uh, as the Lord, uh, I know that was building into you. But uh, uh, it's good to be back with you. It's good to see uh, familiar faces, many of you. I know that... Um, uh, just, uh, boy, so many different lives kind of going on. Uh, as uh, When I was away at the retreat, I was just, I think I had more time. It's just like, uh, and I was able to just kind of think through some of the many family members in the church and praying for each of you guys as uh, God brought you to my memory. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, verse 12 through 17. Luke 9, 12 through 17. <clears throat> And we come to a, a familiar passage uh, the, that uh, many of you probably have read many times or seen, heard sermons about, and even uh, as we've uh, read this morning and, uh, and read in scriptures this morning and some of the, <coughs> and we've sung in the songs, uh, there are a lot of themes that relate to our passage this morning in our Christian life. <clears throat> Luke chapter 9, verse 12 to 17, we're going to look at uh, pretty, it's a short passage, so six verses in all, so we can have the opportunity to read the whole thing in context. I actually will read uh, from a few verses back, from verse 10 through 17, just to give us a little bit of context here for us. Let us hear the word of God. Luke chapter 9, verse 10 through 17. This says, word of God. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him. And welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. Verse 12. Now the day was ending, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away, that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here we are in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down to eat in groups of about 50 each. They did so and had them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish And looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up, 12 baskets full. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that we can read and hear this morning and ask that your spirit would cause your word to go forth, that it would encourage us, uh, uplift us, that you would uh, give us hope, that you would give us strength, that we would be awed again by the power of Jesus and by his ability to, <clears throat> to work wonders, wonders that no other man can work but only the Son of God. We thank you, Father, for uh, just this time and pray that uh, you would glorify yourself through the preaching of your word. Lord, for so many members in this church with so many different needs, Lord, I pray that 
your word would go forth and minister to each and every one in their specific place and time, their specific needs, that you might be glorified, that all the people might walk out of here hearing your word and knowing that you are sufficient, you are enough for wherever they are at right now. In Jesus' name we pray. When we read the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's not just saying the same thing in each Gospel. Uh, Each one's telling us about the life of Jesus Christ. Each one gives us a little different focus. Matthew gives us a uh, focus uh, from written from a Jewish audience. Uh, I think focusing on Jesus as the King, the Messiah. Mark is written to a a Roman audience with the focus of Jesus as being the suffering servant. Luke is written to a Gentile audience with a focus of Jesus as the Son of Man. And John is written to a universal audience with the focus of Jesus as the Son of God. And when we study all four Gospels together we, uh, and we compare and contrast them, we often call this a, a harmony of the Gospels. And there are books that you can buy that are a harmony of all the Gospels. They put all, all the Gospels together, kind of just kind of put them together and kind of match them up where similar passages are found together. And it's quite an interesting study to do a, a, a harmony of the, study a harmony of the Gospels. You can learn much. Yeah. <clears throat> it's interesting as you do the harmony of the Gospels. Sometimes you'll come across passages or events in Jesus' life that are only found in one of the Gospels. That it's not found anywhere else. It's not found in the other three Gospels, just in, the, in this particular Gospel. We've already come to a couple passages like that in the Gospel of Luke. But then we also, as we study the four Gospels, it's also interesting when we come across passages that we find in all four Gospels. And you would think that when writing about the life of Jesus that there must be a lot of these different events that are found in all four Gospels. But when you think about the three-year ministry of Jesus, when you count them all up, there's actually only about ten events that are found and recorded in all four Gospels. Of the of these ten, the majority of them, most of them, are found in that last week of Jesus' life on earth. <clears throat> it begins with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The others are the identification of his betrayer at the Last Supper, his betrayal, his arrest, Peter's denials of him, uh, both trials before Pilate, uh, Pontius Pilate, his crucifixion, his burial, and then the empty tomb. The majority of these, these all take place in the last week of Jesus' life. All very significant because they involve the, the, the suffering of the Messiah, his eventual death and his resurrection. But there's only one event. And when you study these Gospels and you compare there's only one event outside of Jesus' final week that is recorded in all four Gospels. So significant that all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they write it down. They record it. Perhaps uh, the others knew about it. Uh, uh, there's some events people other may have known about it and not written it down but here all four knew this event heard about this event and they recorded this event of course by the spirit of God and of course you can guess that which, which that event that might be uh, it's the feeding of the 5,000 it's this miracle that we find in our text today its parallels are found in Matthew 14 Mark's chapter 6 and John chapter 6. Just for your reference, you can 
Uh, if you have time this afternoon, you want to do a fun family activity, uh, take write all four Gospels together and write the comparisons and contrasts. And if you can find something that was like, oh, that's, that's stated a little differently here than in, in this Gospel than the other Gospel, and you can figure out, well, why was it stated differently? Why was that added? Why was that subtracted? And, try to, and you can kind of piece together the full story when you study all four uh, records of it. <clears throat> that this miracle <clears throat> alone is recorded in all four Gospels uh, tells us that it was significant to the early church. Of course, it was an event that had significantly had a lot of witnesses, 5,000 at least, more really if you count all the women and children. And then when you study this, but it's more than just that it was testified to by many, but it's a miracle that's recorded in all four because it's significant in how it kind of brings to a climax a climactic event in Jesus' Galilean ministry to kind of uh, <clears throat> kind of nail the uh, the nail into the, you know, the coffin, the final nail. As if this is this is the this is the one miracle that proves who Jesus is. Of course, all the other miracles do the same too. But this one, and the very, is the final one that proves that Jesus is the Messiah. Of course, there'll be others that he he would uh, do as well. John's account, in fact. Uh, tells us, ends with these words. Therefore, when the people saw the sign, uh, John six fourteen, when they saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And that term prophet means they, they refer to the messianic prophet, the Messiah. And what's more, the miracle, <clears throat> the miracle of the feeding of 5,000 is followed by Jesus in, John, in the Gospel of John by this significant lengthy discussion Jesus' discourse on the, the bread of God <clears throat> that brings life to the world. So the miracle of the feeding of 5,000 hints that Jesus is the bread of life. Even in Luke's gospel, uh, both before and after uh, this particular passage, there is discussion among <clears throat> different people about who Jesus is. Verse 7, to eight, verse seven and 8, chapter 9, verse 18 to 20. Even as the miracle serves to testify of who Jesus is, Jesus... <clears throat> in his wisdom, uses this miracle to teach his disciples some lessons, some important lessons. Lessons about himself, but lessons also about themselves, and particularly their ministry in the case of their relationship with him, their special relationship with him as his apostles. Recall that he had chosen these 12 to be with him, to eventually be sent, and to be eventually sent out by him as his representatives on earth, his apostles. They had just returned from their uh, first short-term mission, and they were, had, had the opportunity to give a report. And in this, in, as in this miracle, disciples learn some important lessons then about their master and the ministry he is entrusting to them. And certainly, the twelve have a, had a unique ministry as apostles of Jesus Christ. There are, nevertheless, some similarities between them with, with us, uh, between their ministry and our ministry, because they were disciples of Christ just as we are disciples of Christ. And I hope that as we walk through this text, that it will encourage you and me as disciples of Christ in the, in the ministry that God gives us together as a church, as a corporate body, and even in the ministries that God gives us as individuals within this church. As we look at this passage, we're going to give you a three-point outline, pretty uh, uh, basic. We'll learn from the feeding of the 5,000. It will provide us three lessons about the disciples Master and ministry. Three lessons that we learn about the disciples' master and their ministry. 
Let's look at lesson number one. Lesson number one, the disciples learn about their responsibility. Their responsibility to their master, their responsibility to their ministry. This path, uh, when we, uh, how do we arrive at these three kind of points of our outline is basically we see three exchanges between Jesus and the twelve. There's a, there's a sort of like the twelve will, will say something and then Jesus will respond. They will say something and he will respond. And then he will, they will do something and he will then do something. So it's kind of a back and forth exchange. And the first one is found in verses 12 through verse, uh, the first part of verse 13. We read, <coughs> excuse me, my throat feels real dry all of a sudden. Now the day was ending, it says in verse 12, and the 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here we are in a desolate place. Now it tells us that the day was ending. So this is a particular day in the life of Jesus. It had been a a very long day of ministry, a long day of travel. Jesus had taken the 12 across the Sea of Galilee from somewhere around Capernaum to the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee to a city called Bethsaida by boat. From there, they traveled to a a quieter place, a a region around there, a a mountainous region, to a, a quiet place away from the crowds. Later on, it's called a desolate place. And though the intention was to be alone, uh, as we we had read actually earlier in the chapter as well, the crowds followed Jesus. They they heard about that he was there, they figured out that he was heading that way, and so they traveled along uh, the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. And as they all arrived and approached Jesus, instead of turning them away, instead of saying, no, this is a private time for me and the 12 apostles, uh, so we can spend time just to to pray and to to reevaluate and things like that, or to to report. Jesus doesn't do that. He welcomes all of them, verse 11, right? Speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. And so now it would have been a lengthy day of, of travel, of then teaching, healing, and now the, it was the evening time. Uh, the twelve saw that it was getting late, and the place where they were gathered were, was a very desolate place. It was a, it, was a, it was a desert place, a wilderness place. And so they told Jesus to send the crowd away, right? Jesus, you got to send these people away. Uh, so, I mean, of course, well-meaning, so that they can find a food and, and find lodging, because it's in the wilderness. You know, if you're going to be out, you wouldn't want to, even in Northern California, you wouldn't be out in the woods overnight, right? It, it drops pretty cold. Just, I was out at Santa Cruz Mountains uh, where we have our retreat. <clears throat> it was cold at night. I wouldn't want to have to be outside at night without food and without lodging. And so this is a very fair kind of, it seems, a, a, at least to us, a very fair kind of uh, instruction or a request that they make. But notice that it isn't a request. It's actually a command. These disciples command Jesus to send these people away. They thought that they knew enough of the situation to tell Jesus what to do. In their minds, uh, their master was so busy, he didn't know what was happening. So they had to help him realize the, the direness of the situation. According to John's account, however, Jesus knew exactly what was going on. He knew what was happening. In fact, even before the multitude had fully gathered, he had actually gone up to a mountainside. Uh, they were up on the mountain. And he could see the, the crowds coming towards him. And there in John uh, chapter 6, he asked Philip the question, as the crowds were approaching, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? 
the question, of course, implied that Jesus and his disciples had a responsibility to provide food for the multitude that was coming. Jesus asked, he says, where are we to buy food? He says, no, well, I'm to buy food, but where are you? As my apostles are to buy food to fully feed the many. John chapter 6, verse 6 records this. That it was the, the very next verse. says, this he was saying to test him, that is Philip. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. Jesus knew what he was intending to do. He knew he was going to feed the 5,000. He knew he was going to do a miracle. But he nevertheless asked Philip this question. He wanted to test Philip as well as the other disciples' heart. Would they see the feeding of the multitude as their responsibility? Probably as Jesus was teaching, the disciples were discussing among themselves Jesus' question that he had asked, posed to Philip, and Philip then brought it to Peter. He brought it also to Andrew, because Andrew was from Bethsaida, who would have known the area. And as they discussed, they realized, they started kind of estimating the number of people, 5,000 men, not including women and children, according to Matthew 14, 21. So... Despite what Jesus had asked, after calculating the situation, they gave Jesus their counsel. Jesus, we can't feed all these people. Send them away. Let them take care of themselves. It's not our responsibility. Besides, it's their food. It's not our problem. It's their problem. They've got to figure it out. And that's when Jesus gives them a quite unexpected reply. Verse 13, the first part of verse 13. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. See, the disciples wanted to send the crowds away to eat. And that just made sense. At least uh, uh, probably even as we read it. But Jesus wanted the disciples to feed the crowd. Jesus emphasized, in fact, the disciples are to feed the crowd when he uses the second person plural pronoun here. He adds it. Usually in the Greek, it's almost implied by the verb. And so in, when, when someone's speaking and they add the actual pronoun in the text, it emphasizes, it says, you yourselves give them something to eat. Now, Jesus, the master, is the one who is giving the command. You are my apostles. You represent me. You will teach them what I teach. You will give them what I give. Don't be so quick to send the people away. Because Jesus would later explain following this miracle that he is the bread of life. Remember that in John 6. This miraculous feeding means more than just that Jesus provides for all our physical needs. It means that. includes that. Jesus does provide for all our physical needs and more. But he also provides spiritual food as well, doesn't he? He's the bread of life. That's what it means. It's not talking about bread that you eat and then you'll be hungry, you don't want it, you'll go from a food. It's not bread you eat, you will never go hungry again. And so Jesus, when he is gone, he knows that his disciples will continue the task providing spiritual food to the people. Just as the miracle and the great catch would convey their call, the disciples' call as fishers of men, back in chapter 5. So the miracle here would remind them of their responsibility to give the multitudes something to eat. That's their job as disciples. As Jesus' apostles, in fact, just as Jesus gave the people spiritual food to eat, he wants them, you give them something to eat. They're to do the same. 
And this, and we, sadly, they don't because they just felt that it wasn't their problem. It wasn't their task. The attitude of the disciples is an attitude that we too can fall into. It's not our problem. When God brings people into our midst and we find out how difficult they can be, maybe <clears throat> how impossible it is, seems to minister to them, it's, uh, their problems are so great, it just seems over my head. We may not be so uh, cor- uh, you know, uh, unkind to say, oh, please go away. You know, you're just so you're a troublesome person than me. But we will practically probably just start distancing ourselves. We see them, oh, go this other way. We may even ignore them, make excuses to go the other way, find someplace, something else to do. Oftentimes, and I understand because their problems, and, I, and I, as a pastor, I felt it. At times, the problems of God's people seem more than what we can are able to do on our own. It's overwhelming when someone is suicidal, when a couple is breaking up and they hate each other. They do not want to be re- reconciled. When, when a parent is, is, is struggling with a, with a rebellious child, I can't make them get back together. I can't make your child repent. I can't do those things. I cannot change any hearts for you. I can't heal your marriage. There are times when with the people in, in, in ministry, the problems are, are too great. In fact, oftentimes, the problems are too great. I don't know what to say. I'm not trained to handle this. And sometimes we might think, oh, that's a thorn in my flesh. Oh, Lord, please remove them out of my life. <laughs> but, of course, you know, God might put that person just there. God has brought that person in life just to, for you to learn to depend upon him. If God, may, if God has brought that person in your life, then God very well, because he's a sovereign God, may very well is wanting you to trust in him to serve and minister that person. And it's likely that Jesus wants you to give them something to eat, not physically. Something from God's word. Truth so you can encourage. And that's all we can do, right? We're, we're, as Christians, we give God's counsel, God's word to one another. Just as the apostles would give to, uh, to, to Israel. Yet Jesus had given the twelve a responsibility that they were inadequate to fulfill. And this becomes a second lesson for them to learn as we study this miracle. Not only do we see the disciples, they learn about their disciples' responsibility, but they also learn about, very quickly, their inadequacy. Their inadequacy in verses, latter half of verse 13 to 14. And they said, verse 13, uh, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. Now Jesus wanted them to trust in him to provide food. He wants them to just, but it's clear here that their response showed that they were stopped with their own human limitations and could not look beyond it to the infinite power of Jesus who stood before them. You you think about it. Hadn't they just been observing all day performing Jesus performing various miracles among the multitude? Curing the sick, casting out demons. And yet they could not see past their limitations. 
They state quite clearly, our limitations are clear, Jesus. We have no more than five loaves and two fish. That's their answer to the Lord. Now, these loaves of bread weren't like, you know, Wonder Bread, you know, or like loaves of bread. You know, so, wait, do they even sell Wonder Bread anymore? I, anyways, I date myself. I don't know. Uh, anyway, loaves of bread, you know, the sliced ones. It's not like this big. And that's not even that big, is it? This is, these loaves of bread were little small, like little cakes, little crackers almost. Barley loaves. They were shaped like flat cakes, biscuits, you know. Uh, they were very common among the poor. It would have made a, a lunch, a simple lunch. According to John's account, the loaves and fish belonged to a young boy, a boy in the crowd who had somehow heard about the need or, and offered it to the disciples to help. But Simon Peter remarked in John 6, 9, what are these, these five loaves and two fish, for so many people? And the answer is, it was a pittance. You cannot feed 5,000 plus people. Probably estimates are 10 to 15,000 people were there, including women and children. 10 to 15,000. What are five, lo- five little loaves and two little fish, maybe, are going to feed that many people? They didn't have enough food. It's clear. And they didn't have enough. Not only did they have enough food, but they didn't have enough money either. They, these men understood. They were men of the world. They understood their limitations. <clears throat> the rhetorical question about going to buy food for all these people expected a no answer. It was foolish to even think about going to buy food for so many people. In fact, John tells us, uh, John gives us very interesting details, by the way. It's worth a good read in shot six. That Philip had done some calculating. He's, and if, in John 6, verse 7, he says, 200 denarii worth of food, bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. 200 days' wages, denarii is a day's wage. 200 denarii was therefore equivalent to eight months of wages. Just calculate eight months of your wages. You know, how can, you know, and then try to feed 5,000 people. Well, then, you know, but, well, some of you make more than the average day laborer, of course. It was more than what the disciples could afford. These were simple fishermen. They could not see how they could do what Jesus was asking. But Jesus, however, had given them a task for which he wanted them to trust in him to provide the resources. It was just during the last few weeks. The disciples had done just that, hadn't they? They went out two by two, recall, with nothing but a staff, the clothes on their back, the sandals on their feet, and they went about from town to town, village to village, proclaiming the gospel, killing God, trusting that God would provide for their housing, God would provide for their food while they trust, while they served him. And now they had forgotten so quickly. The task that Jesus gives is a task that Jesus provides. And they saw their inadequacy, but could not see past it to Jesus. Instead of recognizing Christ's power, they focus on the limitations. And we're all like that. We see what's the limitations, what limits us, what we cannot do, what keeps us from going forward. But Jesus responds to the disciples' comment about their limitations, really. Verse 14, there's a mention here about how many people there were. There's a side comment. There were about 5,000 people. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down to eat in groups, about 50 each. Notice Jesus doesn't really address what they say. He said, oh, you're right. We don't have enough. My bad. I'll, I'll tell them to go away and get some food. He doesn't correct them. He says, no, you're wrong. 
They are technically correct. They don't have enough food. They don't have enough money to provide food for so many people. They just didn't arrive at the correct conclusion. They had the right data, wrong conclusion. Which was, the conclusion was for them to turn to Jesus for help. And now that they had acknowledged, though, their inadequacy to Jesus, Jesus simply acts. He instructs the disciples. He is now, he's the master. So he instructs the disciples to, uh, to, to, have the, to have the multitudes, the crowds, sit down on the grass in groups of 50 each. Mark's account tells us that they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. So, you know, that's pretty close. They probably sat in groups of fifties, hundreds. As two fifties were close enough, they were probably a hundred, like a hundred. Now, the instruction may seem a little bit odd. Why fifty? Why a hundred? Uh, why not, you know, some other number? Why not uh, twelve or, you know, forty or a uh, <laughs> thousand? Or, you know, just just seems very arbitrary. Now, at the very least, uh, and we, don't, we cannot know definitively, but at the very least, the groupings were just simply made it practical, made it efficient to distribute the bread to the fish to all the people that he, was going to, uh, that he was going to multiply. But perhaps, as we're thinking about it, we're giving a, uh, we see if we allow ourselves to see this, this miracle as an instruction to the disciples about their ministry, there is also a hint here from Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18 is, is when Moses is out there judging the whole nation of Israel. And he's doing it all day long, from morning till dusk. And his father-in-law, Jethro, sees this and says, what are you doing? You, do, you cannot, you're going to, not only are you going to, you can't help them all, but the people are going to be worn down trying to wait for you all day just to hear your counsel from the Lord. Why don't you, here's my suggestion. Divide the, the nation into groups of thousands, hundreds, fifty, and ten. Set leaders over those groups of hunt that, of those number groups, and then let them judge the people. And if they have any difficult any difficult cases, let them come to you and ask for ju- judgment. Delegate was Jethro's wisdom to his son-in-law. Delegate, and this is certainly what Jesus does when he delegates the gospel ministry to the apostles. Nevertheless, the main point is that Jesus responds to the recognition of inadequacy with his own action to provide. Now, the disciples' attitude here is another threat to, often another common threat to ministry, for, of, <coughs> to ministry. And that's simply this, a very practical, we probably all, I know I've said it, uh, we can't do it. We just don't have enough. And, that, and that's real practical. That's just counting the cost. Okay, we all do that. We should do that. It's wise to do that. But if God asks you to do something, this generally is not the answer. We can't do it. Because if Jesus asks you to do something, he will make sure that you and I will have what we need to do it. And that's the lesson. These, you know... We, we don't have enough. We can't do it. These, these can become excuses sometimes for us to not even try to do ministry. Jesus calls his disciples to a ministry that they are completely inadequate for. Yes. But so, and he does the same towards you and me. He calls us to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our mission, right? He calls us to make disciples. But who here can even make anyone a Christian on our own? When we share the gospel... 
a message of stumbling, a message of foolishness to the world? What's going to make them believe? Is it our, our, our cleverness of speech, the, the winsomeness of our character? Is it us? No. I'm going to have 18 years to spend with my children, maybe more, and I won't be able to make them into Christians. Much less when we interact with people in our lives and we try to make disciples of Christ of them. We can't make anyone believe, yet we still faithfully proclaim the gospel, the good news, don't we not? Jesus wants to recognize our own inadequacy so that we may depend upon him for our adequacy in ministry. The Apostle Paul recognized this when he wrote to the Corinthians. In fact, I love St. Corinthians. It's a, oh, sorry, I just I still recall preaching through this back in the seventh year of ministry. And it's a book all about the ministry. In 2 Corinthians 3, 5, he writes these words. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. See, Paul had it right. Disciples <clears throat> had the first part right. We don't, we're inadequate. We don't have enough. We're not sufficient for this task. <clears throat> but Paul and this latter part of this verse gets it right. And it's the part the disciples missed. If God calls us to do it, our adequacy to do it is from God. Our sufficiency to do it is from God. He will, make, give, he will give us what we need to do it. And in our inadequacy, we learn the sufficiency of Christ. And that's the third lesson we learn about Christ's sufficiency. I was tempted to put the disciples' sufficiency, but I'll put the Christ's sufficiency in verses 15 to 17, the last part of this miracle. In verse 15, we see what the, the apostles do in response to Jesus' words to tell the people to sit in groups of 50. They don't ask for an explanation. What are you going to do? They simply, verse 15, they did so and had them all sit down. The disciples did just as what Jesus commanded here. They obeyed. Yes, they didn't have enough food. Yes, they didn't have enough money. But they don't argue with Jesus. He's their master. He's their teacher. And Jesus gives them the instruction, and they obey. Jesus commanded the 12, who in turn commanded the people, and they all sat in groups of 50. Simply put, these disciples trusted and obeyed Jesus. No more alternate plans. No more excuses. Just follow Jesus. And Jesus will provide. And that's what they do. They, they follow Jesus' commands. They follow his instructions. They follow his words. And they trust him to provide. Verse 16, then Jesus does provide. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them, kept giving them disciples to set before the people. And they all ate, were satisfied, and the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up, 12 baskets full. What the disciples considered inadequate, Jesus then took those five loaves and two fish. And after giving thanks to God for that food, he broke them, the loaves, the fish in turn. And as Jesus divided the bread and the fish, he kept then giving them to the disciples to distribute to the crowds. The grammar of the verb indicates that the food was being multiplied in his hands. It was was being multiplied right there as as it continued on. For we learn a, a phrase, there's a phrase that goes like something like this, that's quite, just, that comes out of this text. A little in the master's hands 
is more than enough. Jesus' provision of food from the five loaves and two fish was more than adequate, right? Yes, it's five loaves and two fish, and to us, that's not enough. But with Jesus, it is enough. Everyone that we read about ate to their heart's content. They all ate their full. All were satisfied. It wasn't like, just, oh, um, I just uh, it'll hold me till, you know, later on. They were all satisfied. They all went to the buffet, you know. They were all full. They all had enough. No one was left hungry. In fact, there were leftovers. Twelve baskets full. Now, it, this could simply be coincidence that there are twelve baskets full. Maybe it's coincidence that there are 12 tribes, you know, 12 apostles. It's coincidence that there are, you know, this number 12 shows up in different time, places. But most likely this is intentional. Intentional by the sovereignty of God. One basket for each disciple. To show that Jesus is not just enough, but more than enough perhaps. But if you accept that this is a lesson for the disciples about their ministry, who's serving the people, serving the, the, the Messiah, the bread of life, perhaps it's a picture that there is more, that there is more bread for them to distribute to others, that they would continue on the ministry of Jesus through them. They would share the good news of the Messiah and the bread of life with others when he is gone. The main takeaway for the disciples is this, that the disciples' sufficiency is not their own, but derives from the sufficiency of Christ. The disciples looked at five loaves and two fish, and they saw only their inadequacy. They thought that only, they, <clears throat> they thought they only had these five loaves and two fish. They forgot, though, that they also had Jesus. What is it that limits our lives? We think like this, right? Oh, I've only got this. I've only got that. I don't have enough this. I don't have enough that. Do you have Jesus? You have enough. You have more than enough for whatever it is that you are facing. While Jesus could have made food out of nothing, he could just, he, he, he created the universe by speaking things in existence, right? But he chose willfully to take these five loaves and two fish. He wanted the disciples to see that their little in his hands could accomplish much. It's a picture of what their lives would be in his hands. Twelve insignificant men from Galilee. Twelve obscure men in the hands of the master would change the world. And the same goes for disciples like you and me today. Jesus is not limited by anything that you have or don't have. Jesus is not limited by anything that you are or are not. Jesus wants you to recognize that everything you are and everything you have, though they are inadequate, in his hands can do and accomplish great works for God. Because it is he who is sufficient for you. As Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Jesus saying to him, my grace is sufficient for you. Your sufficiency, brothers and sisters, for all of life and ministry is Christ alone. Right? I think we'd all say amen to that. We understand that. But as we live in this world, we 
can't help but also look at the realities. And yes, brothers and sisters, the realities will often tell us we don't have enough. We are inadequate. We're insufficient. But if God, whatever it is that God calls us to do, we can count on the fact that we will have enough for it. It may be material possessions, but more than likely it is going to be spiritual riches that you will have more than enough to handle whatever you are facing. The feeding of the 5,000 is a miracle that equips and encourages the 12 to carry out their own ministry in the days when Jesus is gone. And one final point of encouragement is, is this, that the, the miracle itself as a whole affirms that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, just like the prophets, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus could multiply food. Elijah did in 1 Kings 17 with the widow and the oil and the bread and things like that, the oil and bread, flour. But Elisha would do something very similar. In fact, Elisha multiplies food. Uh, God multiplies food through Elisha's ministry in a, in a very similar way to what we see here in this uh, miracle. And so 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 42 to 44, and I, I put it up there for you. <clears throat> and I want to read for you. It's a really short thing. You kind of, if you're reading 2 Kings, you just like read through it and you wouldn't even think, you might not think much about it. You might read right through. But I'd like to read it for you. Just to listen for the similarities between this miracle that Elisha was involved in and Jesus' miracle. Now a man came from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread, bread of, the man of God is Elisha, brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And he said, give them to the people that they may eat. His attendant, this is uh, Elisha's servant, said, what will I, what, what, will I set this before a hundred men? But he, as Elisha said, give them to the people that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. This, uh, <clears throat> this miracle is just, that takes place here happened in a time when there was a famine in the land, and there was some, uh, <clears throat> there was some priests uh, that were, <clears throat> and <clears throat> there were some men that had gone to Elisha to, uh, prophets that were uh, the son of the prophets that were there, uh, <clears throat> basically dependent, uh, needy, looking for food from Elisha. And this person uh, f- from Baal Shalisha brought this food. He brought barley loaves, kind of the same kind of bread, and fresh ears grain. And he, and he wanted to give to the people, but there was uh, there was over a, about a hundred people there. And the his attendant, Elisha's attendant, basically said, "What? You want me to put twenty barley loaves?" For a hundred people and a little bit of grain, that's not enough. You know, so he was, he, was, he was incredulous. It's not enough. But then Elisha says, give them to the people that they may eat. Really, you give them to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord. This is of the Lord. This is what the Lord's going to do through this, this little, this 20 loaves of barley. They shall eat and have some left over. They're going to have more than they need. They're going to, have to be filled to the full, and they'll still have some loaves. And, of course, he put it before them. They ate, and they had it left over. It doesn't tell us how much they had left over, but it, was, it all took place. It was, multi- food was multiplied in, so that it was enough for the 100 people, and there was leftover food. The command to give the people food to eat, along with the comment here about the inadequacy of the food, and the, the, all the, the buns of the leftover are all found not only in 
this passage, this passage, but also in our own miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. But in our miracle, the, the difference is there are far more people. It's not 100 men. It's 5,000 men, 10, 15,000 people. And it's far less bread. Not 20 loaves, five loaves. And yet, nevertheless, they are all fed. And notice, Elisha doesn't even touch the bread because it's God who does the multiplying. But when Jesus takes the bread, he starts handing it out. It is a testimony that God is still the one multiplying the bread. The Son of God is the one breaking it and distributing it to the people. It's a testimony. If, and if they, those that would have, remember these miracles, they would see that this is one who does the same miracles as the prophets, but he does it far greater and far superior than the prophets of old did. This is no less than the Messiah, the prophet who is to come. Well, we end in conclusion. The, the miracle of the five thousand was the provision of the bread from the bread of life. And when Israel wandered in the wilderness, God provided food for them from heaven in the form of manna. The Israelites ate that manna until they celebrated the Passover for the first time in the promised land under Joshua's leadership. And then it ceased. According to John's gospel, really John gives us the greatest explanation of this miracle. The miracle of the feeding of 5,000 occurred shortly before the Passover. The miracle itself revealed that Jesus is the new bread from heaven. Jesus would say in John 6, 51, these words, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. See, Jesus is the bread of life that is freely offered to anyone who partake of him. And Jesus offers his flesh. He's saying that you will be able to eat this bread of life so that you will live forever because I will offer up my life for you. I will offer my flesh on the cross. This is a, a, that he will, this is an uh, indication that Jesus understands that he's going to die on the cross for our sin. He's going to give up his life for their sins so that they who receive him and believe in and put their trust in him will have their sins forgiven through Christ and have the hope of eternal life in Christ. Until the day that God draws us to heaven to be with him, to experience eternal life. We who live for Christ now can learn from this miracle. Of our responsibility to to minister to those that God brings into our lives. Of our inadequacy to do so in our own finite strength. And of our sufficiency in Jesus Christ. Who is always more than enough. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and this miracle that uh, uh, familiar to us. And Lord, we thank you and praise you for just as Jesus provided food for the multitude, we thank you, Lord, especially this Thanksgiving season, that you do provide for all our needs. You provide us our daily bread. You provide us for everything we, uh, everything we need for life and godliness. Thank you, Father, that in Jesus we have the bread of life. In him we have life, the hope of eternal life because of Christ's offering up of his own flesh. But Lord, we thank you that in Christ we have all that we need for this ministry that, we, that you've entrusted to us. And as we serve you, Lord, there are times when we serve you that we are overwhelmed. 
that we don't know what to do, that we see only the obstacles, and we seem like, it seems like there's no way forward. But Father, we thank you for the hope to know that, with, that any task you give us will be a task that you'll provide us for, fully for. So Lord, we pray that this, those moments that we would lean more upon you, that we'd find our strength in you, that we find your sufficient grace, that in our weakness, your power might be perfected. And God, we pray that you might, through us, these weak vessels, use whatever little we offered up to you, Father. Take our five loaves and our two fish. Father, multiply them so that the bread of life might be offered to all that we know in our lives and our world that you might be glorified as many more come to know Jesus. Father, we pray that you would help those of us that are, that are weak right now, that are feeling overwhelmed by our inadequacy and our insufficiency. And God, Father, just remind us more of who Jesus is. Remind us more of this master that we follow. And God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. God bless.